Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril McLeico. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Victoria Sanford is John Simon Guggenheim Fellow and Professor of Anthropology at City University of New York. She has given expert testimony on the Guatemalan genocide in international courts and authored seven books, including Buried Secrets, Truth and Human Rights in Guatemala, and most recently, Textures of Terror, The Murder of Claudina Isabel Velasquez, and Her Father's Quest for Justice, which was just published in May. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to The Signal. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to see you in person virtually. <laughs> Likewise. Um, first, can you explain to listeners how Guatemala became such an important part of your academic work and, and your life in general? Well, that's a great question. Um, in the 1980s, like a lot of um, young university students, I was really concerned about uh, U.S. intervention in Central America. And in 1985, when I had been thinking about going to law school, I was working with a lawyer who did civil rights and police misconduct law, kind of interning. And he, um, he said, I got a call from the Guild, the National Lawyers Guild. They need help setting up a law office in rural Louisiana. And I said, why do they need a law office in rural Louisiana? And he said, because the INS, which is the Immigration and Naturalization Service that was existed before Homeland Security, what we have today, um, they were picking up refugees from the wars in El Salvador and Guatemala, in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, all over the country. And they were shipping them to rural Louisiana to set up a deportation mill. And it was in Oakdale, Louisiana. We were five hours from New Orleans and four hours from Houston. This is before fax machines were invented, not just internet. There were no fax machines. Um, we had third day Federal Express delivery and the New York Times arrived a week after the date it was issued. Um, so it was pretty isolated. And so I went there to help set up this office and I was so compelled by the stories of the refugees um, and also in the process of, of doing this work to try to help bond them out and get them, basically we were trying to bond them out and get them across the border to Canada where they could get refugee status. Um, in the process, I met 13 Conhobal Maya and I, uh, despite all the work I had been doing against US intervention in Central America, I didn't know that there were indigenous people in Guatemala who didn't speak Spanish and I had to find uh, someone who could translate. And the person I found to translate was an anthropologist who was a linguist who spoke Conhobal. And that was kind of a moment when I thought, I want to go to Guatemala. I want to learn more about this. Um, and that kind of began my path toward anthropology. So uh, this offers a good segue into your new book, Textures of Terror, the murder of Claudina Isabel Velasquez and her father's quest for justice um, because past is prologue, right? And it helps, helps explain the current situation um, with what's happening now in the country. So, you know, can you take listeners on a, on a brief or as brief as possible um, historical listening tour of Guatemalan history, maybe, maybe starting with the country's abrupt and premature end to its 
10-year democratic spring in 1954, and then through the 36-year internal armed conflict and state-sponsored genocide that followed. Sure. Um, that's exactly where I was thinking I would start it, is 1954. Um, in 1954, Guatemala had a democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz, and Jacobo Arbenz um, initiated a land reform um, project, which was to um, uh, buy back fallow land, land that wasn't being used by the United Fruit Company, big banana company, um, at the rate that the banana company said it was valued. Um, and of course, the United Fruit had been undervaluing the land for years, and so they didn't want to sell it back. And in fact, the land reform that Jacobo Arbenz initiated was much more moderate than land reform programs the United States was supporting in Taiwan at the time, or um, programs that were happening in Hong Kong, places that became the tiger states and became economically um, very um, strong because they had had these land reform programs in the 1950s that provided an equalizing, uh, economically equalizing space for the development of the middle class. That never happened in Guatemala because the United States supported a military coup. And that military coup that happened in 1954 um, destroyed uh, the democracy in Guatemala and set off a path of years of military dictatorships you look at heads of state in Guatemala from 1954 to 1985, you see a lot of different generals. And that's because it was coup after coup after coup. And it was a destruction of democratic values, civil society, um, hunting down and disappearing and killing union activists, um, anyone who stood up for justice or democracy. And in the 1980s, that culminated with a genocide of indigenous people. Um, it began in 1981 and hit its apex under the rule of Efrain Rios Montt in the summer of 1982. Um, in the end, 626 villages of Maya were massacred. Um, over 200,000 people were killed. 50,000 people were disappeared. 1.8 million Guatemalans were internally displaced. And this in a country at the time that had a population of 8 million people. So to try to visualize what that meant, I always tell my students, just imagine one out of every eight of you no longer has a home. The clothes you're wearing, if you survive, you'll be wearing in two years up in the mountains because that's how people survived. Or they, they crossed the border, went through Mexico and came to the United States. So that's the historical background of violence there. In the 1990s, because of the end of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, by the time we get to the 90s, the United States is supporting peace processes in Central America, in El Salvador, in Guatemala. And a peace process begins in Guatemala when the peace accords are signed. Um, the army has 60,000 soldiers and more than a million civil patrollers. It has uh, 20,000 police, 20,000 other security forces. The guerrilla, their enemy, had less than 1,500 armed combatants in the entire country. Um, so you can see the uneven, um, uneven forces there. Um, and that resulted in a heavily favorable um, uh, peace accord for the army because they really had the power. And in fact, when uh, Lieutenant Colonel I interviewed said, it doesn't matter what the peace accords say, um, whoever has the most power wins. We have the most power, we won. And that's why you see all the same military names regurgitated. Now it's those generals and their sons who continue 
um, running for office and, and or their daughters in the case of Zuri Rios, the daughter of the genocidaire running for president in Guatemala. And so what that what that means in the process of the, the peace accords and the, the new democracy in Guatemala is that those structures of violence were never completely disarticulated. And there are moments when Guatemala came close or closer to having rule of law, particularly um, during the recent period when the UN had a commission against impunity um, and some really big criminal networks were brought down. But of course, the criminal networks in Guatemala were very opposed to this UN commission. And it unfortunately coincided with the Trump administration in the United States, which had absolutely no interest in justice in Guatemala. And that commission collapsed. And the result of that is that the advances that were made in rule of law and democratization in Guatemala have suffered serious setbacks. And uh, over 30 justice operators, including former attorneys general, are in exile in the United States, in Europe, and elsewhere now. Thank you. Now, during the U.S.-backed Guatemalan government and military's 36-year genocidal counterinsurgency campaign, rape, mutilation, sexual slavery, sterilizations. These were all defining features and intentional weapons of this campaign. Do you think that this helped normalize the gender-based violence um, within the broader population that we're seeing today? It's a great question. I, I absolutely, I absolutely think it did. I mean, I think First of all, the question that you raise is a really important one, because if you think about how deeply affected the population of Guatemala was by all of this violence, those who were adults, those who were adolescents, those who were children, um, we can kind of look at it from different lenses. The first is through the lens of patriarchy in a country where um, women are seen as property, and so women, like most places in the world, women are at greatest risk in the private sphere of violence. So we're, we're raised as women to fear like the man standing around the corner out in the dark at night. But the truth of the matter is we're most at risk in the private sphere in our home environments. Men in our lives are more likely to harm or kill us than some stranger on the street. Doesn't mean that that doesn't happen, but that percentage wise is not the biggest risk. But within that patriarchy, it also means that women are seen as targets for the enemies of men. So if a man wants to attack a man, he can attack his wife or his daughter or his niece. The other thing I would say about what happened in Guatemala is you're right, the Guatemalan military systematically targeted women and used sexual violence as a weapon of war. It wasn't an accident. It's not rogue troops. This was set up and systematic. And it's been shown in recent trials in Guatemala um, from indigenous women who were treated as sexual slaves and um, forced um, into horrible, horrible um, sexual violence and, and conditions. And it, it's amazing that they survived. And they're hugely courageous that they would come forward in a society where they continue to be blamed for their victimization. Um, other part of it, in terms of your question that's really important about the normalization, is that if you think about the trauma that existed and the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder that we would call it in Western terms, that the Maya call it susto, 
If you look up susto in the dictionary, susto will say susto is fright, but susto is more than just fright. Susto is a malady of the soul and the spirit. And I've interviewed indigenous survive, massacre survivors who said, oh, my brother, he died from susto. Um, it, he died from this malady of, of spirit. And we know that um, post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma brings a whole collection of maladies that can include um, hypertension, um, can cause heart attacks, can um, initiate diabetes. I mean, there are a whole lot of physical symptoms that come along with trauma. So you think that here you are in a society that is just fueled with trauma. If trauma is the steroid of that society, and all of the, the individuals, whether perpetrators or victims, and there are a lot of people who are in this middle buffer space of being both men, both victims and perpetrators, some women, but most of the people in that middle victim as, as victimizer are men. None of those people have had um, any type of treatment or assistance to overcome that post-traumatic stress disorder or susto, as people in Guatemala would call it. We also know that trauma is generational. We used to think of trauma as being um, something that was passed down more environmentally in a family um, than biologically. But recent studies show, as women used to say to me in the campo up in the mountains in the 90s, sur women massacre survivors would say, my baby died because I gave my baby susto from my breast milk, right? And, and I would think, well, probably her breast milk dried up and that's why the baby died. Well, we actually know now from studies of breast milk that women do transmit tra trauma through their breast milk and that DNA actually changes generationally for children and grandchildren of survivors of extreme trauma. So I, I think absolutely, yes, all of those pieces are at play. So you have the structural violence of the state, you have the indifference of the government, you, you have the the, the interests of the, the dark forces, the organized crime, drug trafficking, oligarchy, military, former military, who have no interest in rule of law. And you also have individuals who are very open about their patriarchal positions. There's a Vanderbilt study, and if, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe they said 57% of men um, said that women deserve, wives deserve to be disciplined, they, that men had a right to discipline with corporal punishment, their, the women and their family. So the, the idea that um, uh, violence against women is acceptable is absolutely true. People think that that's okay, um, both men and women, because if that's a society you grow, you grow up in, then that, those are the values that become inculcated in who you are. And it means that when women stand up for human rights, there's a real backlash at them. And one of the um, Police investigators, police investigators I interviewed in Guatemala when I was working on this book, I asked him um, to if, 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 if the, the morgue, if in the morgue, the medical examiner treated men and women victims the same. And, and first he said, oh, no, we treat all cases the same. We don't discriminate between men and women when we're doing this research. And then he thought about it and he said, I remember talking to the morgue director and saying, isn't it terrible all these killings of these young women? And his response to me was, what do these women expect taking on the roles of men?
And so he's contradicting himself, right? Because clearly, if that's the position of the chief medical examiner in Guatemala, that the women deserve to have this violence happen to them, that because they've, quote unquote, taken on the roles of men, they deserve to die, then clearly there's discrimination happening. And that helps explain the 98% impunity rate um, for the murder of women in Guatemala. Well, then let's talk about Claudina now. Um, Can you tell us about who she is and her case and how you became involved with her father, Jorge's quest for justice? Sure. Thank you so much. I mean, this is the the point of the book is Claudina Isabel's story. Um, I met Claudina Isabel's father, Jorge Velasquez, through my friend and colleague, Amilcar Mendez, um, because Claudina Isabel was a close friend and law student with um, Amilcar's daughter, Ana Maria Mendez Dardon. They were um, in law school together and friends together. And um, Ana Maria describes their hope for a new world because this is in the early 2000s. And they're just thinking the world, she said, we didn't even think of ourselves as feminists. We just thought we were free. Right. There's like a moment of hope in Guatemala. The peace accords have been signed and women are in law school and 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 they're just thinking this is this is wonderful. And then Claudina Isabel was murdered and um, the police did nothing. And uh, a milker asked, invited me over to their home to meet Jorge. And because of my previous work on. Um, uh, massacres in rural Maya communities. And because Amilcar was a leader in Quiche, um, in the department of Quiche, the indigenous uh, Maya Quiche people live, um, assisting them during the genocide, uh, men who didn't want to participate in army controlled civil patrols, I just assumed that he was asking me to help an indigenous family because usually those were the the requests that I would receive. And so when I got to his home, I was shocked to find this man who was taller than me and whiter than me with blue eyes and a suit and very um, conservative, professional. He was an auditor. That was Claudina Isabel's dad. And I thought, why does this upper middle class businessman need my help? And he clearly speaks Spanish better than me because usually I would go with Mayan um, people and and try to help them with the you know represent their interests in Spanish, and he was also evangelical. So I kind of thought, well, this isn't going to last very long because he's going to try to evangelize me, um, which he didn't. Um, what he did do was use all of his auditing skills to effectively do an audit of every aspect of the legal system in his daughter's case. And so the the this book isn't it's about Claudina Isabel but it's really an audit of the legal system in Guatemala. What should happen? And and Jorge and I learned this together. What are the police supposed to do? What's supposed to happen when you find a dead body in the street? What are the police supposed to do at the crime scene? What are the medical examiners supposed to do? What should happen during the autopsy? What should happen in a police investigation? What are the prosecutors supposed to do? What are the rules? What, What are the rules in Guatemala what are the protocols internationally and and what went wrong in each of these areas? And effectively, that's what this story is about, is Jorge's struggle to try to get the police to do their job, the medical examiners to do their job, the prosecutors to do their job. And at every turn, rather than assist him in seeking justice and trying to find the murderer or murderers of his daughter, 
they blame him or they blame her and, and accuse him of being an irrational person. Because if he was a, a better person, someone who better understood the world, he would understand that these cases just don't get solved because that's the attitude of the authorities in Guatemala. So, so your role assisting Jorge was one of human rights accompaniment? It really became that. I mean, initially, um, I, so I met with, when I first met with him, I started going with him to um, the, the offices, to the human rights ombudsman's office, to the prosecutor's office. Um, I met with police with him. I got copies of the, the autopsy file um, of his daughter, all of the um, uh, forensic uh, analysis, what, what little there was, the crime scene photos, all the information, and started um, sharing this information with people who do know how to do this work, um, mostly in Florida, actually, on this particular case. My colleague, um, Dr. Heather Walsh Haney, who runs the forensic program at Florida Gulf Coast University, was really instrumental um, in getting the very best high quality assistance. We had um, the medical examiner um, from uh, South Florida, Reinhard, Dr. Reinhard Mote, um, who worked on this case, um, Greg Smith, who was the first cold case detective in the country. Um, he worked on this case, reviewing it. Um, we, we took this case to the um, Florida Department of Law Enforcement Cold Case Committee um, and reviewed it with them, with all of these investigators that are from the DEA and the um, Florida State Police and all, all these different investigators who gather together to review cold cases and just brainstorm like what, 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 what's missing? What's the missing link? What's the missing puzzle piece? Um, to, and, and in the end, we came up with all kinds of interesting information and were able to collect a lot of evidence that was never collected in Guatemala. But the problem is someone has to do something with that evidence to move a case forward. And that's where you start talking, not just about equipment, training, um, you start talking about political will. Who has the political will to move a case forward? Um, and, and there really was no political will within that police and prosecutorial system. Uh, so Jorge then with Carlos Pope, who is a Kekchi Maya um, human rights lawyer in Guatemala, moved to this case, um, made a complaint in the Inter-American Commission to ask the Inter-American Court to consider this case and to, uh, to, to look at what the state's responsibility was. And, and I think that's something that makes this a really important case, um, Claudia and Isabel's case, because it's, it's the murder of an individual woman, a young woman with a bright future who wanted to be a lawyer, who had great aspirations to contribute to the world, whose life was cut short. But it's also a case of the state being responsible. And, and that's why I talk about feminicide. Um, it's not simply a murder. It's that the state has responsibility for this murder as well, because the state abdicated the responsibility that it had to protect her life, to protect her right to freedom of expression, to freedom of movement. And, and very quickly, can, can you just explain the difference between femicide and feminicide for listeners? Sure. So femicide is a category that began to be used by the FBI and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police when they started trying to look at the differences in murders, right? If you, if you want to 
quantify murders, like who who does the killing, what are the, the weapons that are used, what are the ages, all the different ways that you might do statistical analysis of murders. Um, one of the things that they discovered is that um, the, the framework for the murder of men and the murder of women is different. And, and this again goes back to women being more likely to be killed by someone they know and in the private sphere. Um, but I won't spend a lot of time. There's a lot of literature that's written about that. But so the, these, these national entities in Canada and the United States look at homicide as male homicide, femicide as female homicide, murder, period. That's it. The feminicide is different. It's um, a term that comes out of uh, feminist writing on the one hand, which um, is it's a feminicide because the woman was killed by a man because she's a woman. Um, but also it's feminicide because the state has responsibility and the state has responsibility, whether it commits the murder, if it's um, agents of the state who commit the murder, or if it's agents of the state who look the other way while the murder is taking place, um, don't respond to the domestic violence, gender violence um, calls that they receive. Look the other way when something's happening in front of their police station or down the street, which is one of the cases that I talk about in my book. Um, but it's also the state has responsibility when it omits its responsibility that it has under national and international law to provide equal protection um, to all of its citizens. So the state is omitting its responsibility when it fails to adequately investigate and sanction the murder of a woman. And that composition together is feminicide. And, and really, feminicide is the product of impunity, which is the violation of the law by those who are charged with upholding it. That's the core, uh, that's the corrupt core of the lack of rule of law in Guatemala. And, and so an example of, you know, the failures of the state would be, for example, the, the judicial system or criminal justice system as well, kind of re-victimizing the victim um, like Claudina Isabel and, and, and dismissing them and, and her in particular as a prostitute because, because according to your reporting, she had, she was wearing sandals and had a belly button ring on. Correct. That, that's exactly right. She was wearing sandals and had a belly button ring, and she was found in a, a zone 11 um, in a neighborhood that if you were going to categorize it in the class system would probably be a lower middle class uh, neighborhood um, in front of a comedor, kind of a little restaurant in a house. And because of that, because of the location, and because she had sandals and a belly button ring, they said she's a prostitute and is not worthy of investigation. And I want to just point out, it, when we presented the case at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, um, the case that came before ours was a case of a prostitute that they were trying to solve. And so, you know, even in Florida, when we have all of this information right now about all of these restrictions that are taking place in that state, but even in Florida, the police seek to solve the murder of prostitutes. Claudina Isabel was not a prostitute. Claudina Isabel was not a nobody, but even if she was a nobody or a prostitute, all human beings deserve equal treatment. And part of the case that was filed in the Inter-American Commission that ultimately went to the court was exactly about these issues that you just raised. And it was that her, her, right, to, her right to life was um, the state failed in her right to life, that it also failed to uphold its responsibility in freedom of movement. Shouldn't matter what neighborhood you're in, 
shouldn't matter where you're walking or what time of day or night it is, and also freedom of expression. Her clothing should have no bearing whatsoever upon whether or not, and this is this is the issue, right, that we hear all the time. Well, why was she wearing that short skirt, right, about a woman? Why was she dressed provocatively? What a woman's wearing should have nothing to do with how she's treated. Um, that's freedom of expression. Otherwise, we're denying freedom of expression. So those were among the core issues in the case that went before the Inter-American Court. Yeah, and the way they characterize Claudina is about she she wasn't an exception to the rule. Like she that that's how they oftenly that's how they often use or often classify these murdered um, and and violated women that they find. Right, absolutely. Not only that, but they'll they'll also say families don't even come to identify them. They're they're Jane Doe's in, in Guatemala. They call them XX, Equis Equis, Jane Doe, unknown, right? But Claudine Isabel was identified the morning of her murder, in the late morning of her murder. She disappeared in the evening. She was killed sometime in the, the mid-early morning. In the late morning, she was identified by her parents. That was in August. It took until November for the medical examiner to actually put her name on the file. And he continued to refer to her as a Jane Doe, as an Ekis whenever he spoke with her family or anyone else about the case. And so one of the questions I ask myself is, if Claudine Isabel was being referred to as an unclaimed Jane Doe, despite the fact that her dad was down at the courthouse, at the morgue, at the police station, at the prosecutor's office every single day, I really don't believe them when they say most of the women aren't claimed, that no one comes to claim them. I think they just aren't, aren't recording the names because that's the experience that we had. And I, and I think especially given the discrimination in Guatemala and thinking that here you have an upper middle class white businessman in a suit, if that's what he gets in this discriminatory structure, you can imagine, and, and that's why I include in, in my book the stories of these different indigenous women and, and their struggle to try to get a response from the medical establishment, from the police, from the prosecutors for their cases of gender violence, um, because clearly the discrimination is just deep and broad. Yeah, I mean, an- another thing that blew my mind while reading your book was just the... Um... I don't know if you would classify it as unprofessionalism because a lot of it might be intentional. I mean, I guess it's still unprofessional, but just not because of incompetence, but just the way the medical examiner just failed to kind of like, you know, perform an an autopsy like accurately. Um, I I just I'm still having troubles like wrapping my head around that. Well, I have uh, several of my friends are novelists, and one of one of one of my friends is Michael Ondaatje, who um, he wrote Anil's Ghost, right? I, that's how I know him when he was doing research for that book. And I was telling him about this book over the years as I've been working on it, and he said, you know, if you were writing a novel, your editor would say this is a little over the top right? Because it's so ridiculous, you can't imagine that it's true. But this is true. It's a true story. And it's definitely where, um, you know, truth, where the truth is, is more fantastical than any fiction you could imagine. It's pretty insane. Let's, um, let, let's talk about another woman that you wrote about, um, Magda from Weiwei Tenango. Could, could you introduce her and her story? 
Sure. So um, I have in the the one of one of the things I'd like to do is say that I I chose these stories, these different women's stories, because I think they're representative of different women's experiences. Um, and I, I, I do just want to mention Esperanza. I don't know if you were going to ask me about Esperanza um, because it's a, an issue of what we might consider child marriage, but really it's conjugal slavery. And I think that sets the tone for the condition in which many of the other women in this book live or the women around them live, which is they're not child brides. They're literally sold into conjugal slavery um, as Esperanza was when she was 12. Um, so um, uh, Magda um, worked on a plantation. Her story is super important because Magda um, actually seeks assistance from the police. She tries to get the police to help her. And she also tries to get the justice of the peace, which in the local system in Guatemala, um, the justice of the peace is, was the person who would um, write out a, a complaint. Um, but they're all applying the law incorrectly. And her husband, who's been abusing her, is a former police officer, right? And so um, because of the way that he, he behaves and because of the connections that he has, um, he, when she goes and files a report with the police, they issue a restraining order, which for most women in Guatemala gets her nothing because where is she going to go? She has a baby. She's trying to figure out like what she can do. The only place she has to go is back to the home. And the justice of the peace who issues this restraining order, he says that her husband, Lucas, is guilty of intra-family violence and that, it, that he's prohibited from perturbing or intimidating Magda. But again, Magda has nowhere to go. And at the same time, what's so interesting about it is so he goes to another justice of the peace and that justice of the peace, basically, they never address the issue about what he did. It, it almost says, well, yeah, he might have done that, but they blame her for having bad character. Right. And that's where you see the patriarchy floating through the legal system and all of every single statement that was written from the police to the justice of the peace who was quote unquote helping her to the justice of the peace who was supporting her husband um, lucas um, they none of them were actually citing the law the laws had changed they're reverting back to the old laws um the, these were actually not real laws they didn't exist anymore. It'd be like if we started using something from the colonial era that is no longer relevant here. So you end up, um, she ends up receiving asylum, right? Um, yes. And, and thankfully, <laughs> this was before the you know, President Trump was elected, former President Trump was elected. Um, how would her circumstances have changed um, if if the timing was off a little bit and if it was like another if it, if it was a year later right no that i mean i think that's a really important question if she had come to the border after all that she had suffered being beaten um being raped having all of these horrible um assaults on her person and on her on her child right she she comes to the border with her baby what would have happened during trump this this victim 
of terrible gender violence, this woman fleeing violence in her country where she has not been given any assistance by the police, by the prosecutors, by the medical establishment. She has nowhere to go. She comes to this the borders of this country asking for asylum, which she has a right to under international law, asking for asylum, which our laws um, agree that a woman fleeing that kind of violence has the right to request asylum, what would they have done? They would have ripped that baby away from her and put that baby someplace else and put her someplace else. That's what would have happened. And that's the cruelty of that. The, the, it's not child separation. It's ripping children away. That's what the Nazis did in Germany. Before they put people on trains to the camps, they took the children away from the, the adults. Does the fact that... Um... You know, this feminicide that we're seeing in Guatemala um, is, you know, structural violence and an impunity of the state and that the state has to accept responsibility for its role in it. Um, you know, th- doesn't that make Guatemalan women who are fleeing violence cases for asylum even stronger under international law? Yes, absolutely. Because it, it under not just under international law, but under our own asylum laws, you need fear for your life if you can demonstrate fear for your life. And so you, here you have, for example, a woman who um, not only has fear for her life, but actually has pieces of paper signed and duly stamped by legal, um, by the police and by the justice of the peace, right, that she had reason to fear for her life. Um, she should be able to get asylum. Those individuals should be able to get asylum. But one of the other things, because then some, the the question comes, the next question that people ask is, well, do you think every woman who's having something bad happen to them in the world should be able to come into this country? That's not the right question. The right question is, what can we do to create conditions where people can stay in their home country where they would like to live? They would like to live in their community. They would like to live with their extended family. They would like to be able to live there safely. So we should think about what can we do, particularly in countries like Guatemala or El Salvador or Honduras or Haiti, where we have really long histories of structurally damaging human rights and democracy in those countries. And and one of the things that we know, looking at the research that I've done that looks at the flow of migrants from um, Guatemala to the United States is that in the historic moments in Guatemala, when um, there have been criminal prosecutions of uh, genocidaires and big corruption cases in Guatemala, migration to the U.S. border goes down because people have hope. People stay home when they have hope. If it looks like tomorrow might be a better day, why would you give up the house you've worked your entire life to have? Why would you leave your land that is sacred to you if you're indigenous up in you know, the mountains of Guatemala? Why would you leave your family and your friends to go someplace that you don't know? Well, if you have hope that tomorrow might be better, you probably wait another day or so and see what happens. But the minute that things start getting bad, when there are more killings and there's less justice, there's more corruption, there's a direct, a direct link to out-migration. And so it's really in the interest of the United States to provide assistance to eliminate corruption and strengthen rule of law. I mean, I'm, I'm almost wary about like how the United States can get involved because of the history of the United States involvement never really ends well. Right. And, and, and like we've talked about, you know, the United States um, bears responsibility 
for the democratic shortcomings of the country, you know, given the, the, the CIA's role in the coup, us supporting dictators, arming, training, death squads, etc. But, but given that, I mean, is there a case to be made that we potentially owe them like reparations, these countries reparations, and that these reparations should maybe include providing Guatemalans refuge and asylum who need it? as well as financial support? That's a great question. I, I believe, yes, we do owe the people of Guatemala reparations for the genocide that we created. Every one of those generals um, that had command responsibility during the genocide and during extreme human rights violations was trained at the School of the Americas or whatever name it had at the time. The School of the Americas has had so many different names. The School of the Americas is where we provide military training to soldiers and officers from all over the world. And it's a, a school for torturers. I and mean, that's where Pinochet was trained. That's where Videla was trained. And then they became trainers. Um, they became trainers at the School of the Americas as well. And so we, I mean, structurally, we, it, and it's not just that we train people, we had people on the ground in Guatemala at the time of the coup in the 1960s and the 1970s and into the 1980s during the genocide um, who participated in the design and execution of these horrific military plans. So um, the United States is not just complicit, it's responsible. And um, we, I think we do owe reparations to the people of Guatemala. You know, the, the German government has just recently um, had come to an agreement with Namibia for the massacre and genocide of the Herero Nama in the early 20th century. And um, they're not calling the money that they've given to the government of Namibia um, reparations per se, but they are calling it a, a, a recognition of, of their responsibility for the genocide that happened, and they apologized for it. And many people don't remember, but when Clinton was president, uh, he apologized for the U.S. role in what had happened in Guatemala. When the Truth Commission report came out, the Truth Commission report in um, uh, 1996 said that um, acts of, um, or that's the peace accords, the Truth Commission report came out in 1999. And when that report came out, they said that acts of genocide had taken place. And Bill Clinton apologized. And so there are legal, scholarly legal articles that ask, what is the value of a presidential apology? And I think your question is a good one. Yes, that could be. Reparations can take many forms. And one of them might be giving refuge to people when we've caused that situation. So, so let's let's end this on a positive note. How how can how would you recommend people who want to get involved uh, in solidarity with the people of Guatemala or Central America? What can they do? Where sh- where can they go to? Well, I think um, I mean people want to be involved in solidarity with Central America. There's the Guatemalan Human Rights Campaign, which is a wonderful organization that does a lot of direct work um, with uh, Guatemalan uh, nonprofit organizations. Um, another organization is the Washington Office on Latin America that does a lot of policy and advocacy work in um, Guatemala. But if you want to get involved on the local level, um, there go go to 
You can, I'm sure if you contact the churches in your community, the Catholic church in your community, they're probably working with refugees from Central America. Um, there are also lots of different migrant projects all over the country. You could contact your local city government, in fact. I know that lots of local city governments are working to try to provide services to immigrants and migrants. And I, I think that, I mean, to end this on a positive note, I think that we can all um, assist at the local level by, by helping migrants wherever they're from. Uh, because people come to this country um, seeking refuge because they, they need a safe haven and a safe place to be. And there are lots of different ways that you can support them. You can support them through direct donations of um, you know, food or clothing. Um, you can make financial contributions to organizations. And the, um, the other two groups that I would like to just also mention is if you want to make a financial contribution, make it to Amnesty International, make it to Doctors Without Borders, um, those are organizations that provide services on the ground for people in need and also UNICEF. Um, so thank you. Yeah, and for local listeners in Bucks County, uh, you can get involved with Immigrant Rights Action. And I'll, I'll provide a list of organizations and resources for folks in the show notes. Um, Victoria, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, the conversation was wonderful. And I just want to encourage everyone to not only get Victoria, get and buy and read Victoria's new book, Textures of Terror, the Murder of Claudina Isabel Velasquez and Her Father's Quest for Justice. But if, you, if you're interested more about the history of Guatemala, um, you know, in the, in the internal conflict, I would also recommend her book, Buried Secrets, Truth and Human Rights in Guatemala. Thanks again, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril McAlego, editor-in-chief and host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. The Signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney at Rating Chicken Media. Intro-outro music by Moff et Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission.